for a healthier North Carolina for $1.8 billion that we cannot afford to leave behind. Let's expand Medicaid now. Coming up on Carolina Connection, a new Medicaid deal means more than half a million North Carolina residents could qualify for health insurance. Good morning, I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lorelai Sykes. Also this morning, some legislators want to require businesses in North Carolina to accept cash payments. An Adderall shortage across the country is causing problems for people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. A UNC lab uses origami technology to help heart attack patients. And UNC student body president-elect Chris Everett promotes diversity on campus. It was never about just like winning to me. It was just about, can I ensure that you feel represented? From the UNC Husband School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. When the General Assembly considers the state's budget plan for this year, it could have profound effects on UNC hospitals, rural health care, and 600,000 uninsured North Carolina residents. That's because legislators plan to expand Medicaid access across the state. Henry Taylor has the story. In the decade after the Affordable Care Act was passed, 40 out of 50 states expanded their Medicaid programs. North Carolina has yet to follow suit, but that could soon change. Republican and Democratic legislators have reached a consensus on a plan that would make an additional 600,000 low-income North Carolina residents eligible for Medicaid. The news of the potential expansion is a relief to many patients and physicians. I'm happy to hear about the expansion of Medicaid. I'm really pleased about particularly the rural clinics. That's Stacy Bean, a primary care physician at Advanced Care in Chapel Hill. She says hospitals and clinics across the state need the expansion, especially in rural communities. You know, we work here in Chapel Hill where people have so much access to care, but in rural communities, I have friends that are doctors in rural communities. You'll have a family doctor that's doing the job of like six specialists rolled into one, and it's very, very difficult. However, she says rural hospitals are not the only ones looking forward to the legislation. Better funded medical centers such as UNC hospitals in Chapel Hill have long wait times for certain procedures, as patients seek care there rather than at local hospitals. Even here in Chapel Hill, where we have so much access, the wait, for example, for a screening colonoscopy is about 11 months now at UNC Hospital. Medicaid expansion has been a longtime goal of North Carolina Democratic legislators, and now also has the support of Republican leaders in a rare demonstration of bipartisanship. Democratic Governor Roy Cooper advocated for the legislation during his State of the State address this month. For mental health, for working families, for rural hospitals, for a healthier North Carolina, for $1.8 billion that we cannot afford to leave behind, let's expand Medicaid now. That $1.8 billion figure comes from HASP, or Healthcare Access and Stabilization, a federal program which reimburses hospitals that care for uninsured patients. The federal government insists states expand Medicaid to get that money. UNC public health professor Sierra Zachary says that these funds in particular could benefit hospitals. When people don't have health insurance, a lot of times they go to the emergency room and they get what's called uncompensated care. And what that means is that like a lot of times hospitals may have to eat that cost. So now our hospitals will be reimbursed. So I think that's where we'll really see like some of the immediate benefits for our, for our hospitals. She says the legislation will particularly help people who make too much to qualify for Medicaid as it exists now, but who also cannot afford insurance. 
people who are part-time workers or contract employees can finally think about having affordable health care instead of thinking about, do I put gas in the car or do I get a doctor's appointment? For Zachary, the benefits of expanding Medicaid are clear. She listed improvements seen in other states that have passed similar legislation. I think we're still collecting that data, but there has been, you know, substantial evidence about, you know, keeping hospitals open, um, getting some of those immediate services, and then also addressing like health disparities. Um, folks in different racial and ethnic groups finally being able to report that they are able to see a regular primary care doctor. Um, we do see evidence of that pretty shortly after expansion. Still, despite the legislative agreement, the plan has a long way to go before it becomes law. Republican leaders want to include it in the state budget bill, which probably won't happen until this summer. I think when the deal or the negotiations were announced last week, definitely feel like this is a momentous, you know, an almost unbelievable victory for folks in North Carolina. I think now is just feeling a bit anxious of when is it going to happen. Medicaid expansion is likely to be one of the many controversial issues in the state budget and could only take effect if the entire budget is passed. There is recent precedent for state budgets failing because they were loaded down with too many divisive provisions. In Chapel Hill, I'm Henry Taylor. Turning to look at campus politics, we are now joined by Chris Everett, next year's student body president. Thanks so much for coming in today, Chris. Thanks for having me. So first of all, congratulations on your win for student body president. How are you feeling about this all? Are you nervous or excited? Both. I mean, it's a big role. Um, definitely a little bit of both. It hasn't really set in that I'm going to be student body president of this very large university, like tier one um, public school. Um, it's been a long, 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 long road. I'm very excited for the work that we can get done. But there's a part of me that's just really wanting to learn as much as I can before going into this very large role. So how do you exactly get to the root of what students like want or need? I started meeting with organizations back in September. And so I came into UNC thinking I wanted to be student body president. And of course, I'm here now. But that changed my second year when I resigned from the undergraduate senate. And so I just began meeting with organizations in September. I met with UNC Hillel, BSM, LGBTQ Center. If you name them, I probably met with them. <laughs> um, and so I really talked to students and these organizations about the ways that we can really benefit students. So what pillars um, were you specifically running on? Like what issues or conversations did you want to build your campaign around? I think DEI was a very, very large piece of it. And I think it's easy to kind of cop that out as like a black candidate running. But I think what makes it different is, is I tied in so many different organizations that didn't necessarily align with my, my identity and just like transparency and accountability. And that just starts with having those conversations. And so me and my team, we've done this for, for so long. I've done this for three years now at Carolina, but in this campaign, we did it for seven, eight months. And this was a very long, long process to prepare. I think that kind of shows that, but it was definitely built on just uplifting all student identities and experiences, which is why we created Share the Podium, which is an idea of just bringing all students into the space where we all feel seen and heard and valued. Yeah. What is Share the Podium? That's just this almost like a sub, a sub campaign title we kind of came up with. But I think in my experience, a very large reason that I left student government my sophomore year was because I felt so unheard and underseen and undervalued. And that was a very, very hard experience for me. And so the idea of sharing the podium was that in the ways that I can't advocate for an experience or an identity that isn't mine, what I can do is just bring you to the space and let the advocacy happen directly. So you're now the third consecutive um, black student body president and on a predominantly white campus. Like, is that tough for you? Or how does that make you feel like following in these like footsteps of like Teddy Van? Right. I think it's been 
a challenge. Of course, I'm so honored to be third black Sumai president. Let me tackle that first. Mm -hmm. That's an experience, I think, coming onto this campus, I never thought I would ever see. And I think, of course, I always said, like, oh my gosh, yeah, I would love to be Sumai president, but I never saw that as a reality. But now that we're here and being the third you know, black SVP in a row is just mind blowing. Just also considering the background of our university and the continuing conversations that are going on. Um, but it has been challenging, if I'm being honest. I think I've learned that I'm a very soft-spoken person. I did not know that. Um, my campaign manager, again, kind of informed me of that. And so I've been really challenged to step into the role and step into myself and step into my confidence. So I definitely have some shoes to fill, but I'm seeing it as I'm filling my own shoes because I'm trying to build my own legacy and build a new support system and system at UNC now. I'm very excited. It's been a long time coming, but I'm excited to just start a lot of conversations and bring people to the table and hopefully build something together. And I will say um, that's kind of what I set out on this entire campaign. It was never about just like winning to me. It was just about, can I ensure that you feel represented? And I think we built a really beautiful thing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Chris. Of course, thank you. That was newly elected student body president, Chris Everett. At some businesses, cash is no longer king. They only accept electronic payments. But a group of Republican legislators want to pass a law that would require all North Carolina businesses to accept cash payments. Kyle Turek reports. Can I get a 20-ounce vanilla ice latte, please? Absolutely. UNC students Nikhil Satinathan and Elena Holder visit Meantime Coffee Company at the Campus Y every Wednesday morning. I love how sustainable they are as a, as a project and... It's always kind of a calming environment to come into in the morning and, and get some coffee. If they want to pay with cash, though, that is not an option at this on-campus business. I always pay in card when I'm here. That's just because of convenience. But I work for tips at my job, and it's hard to go and like put my cash in the bank to get it on a card and all of that. Um, so I definitely would pay in cash just because of that. Meantime's chief operating officer, Emily Kang, said the business transitioned to card-only payments back in 2018. We were in the process of getting our nonprofit status approved and with um, cash tips and cash payments, it was a little harder to um, track all of that information um, when we were applying and we wanted our application to be really solid. She also said that security was a main deciding factor when cash payments were cut. We occupy the campus Y and the building itself is not cash secure so we want to just make sure we're keeping our employees safe but also everyone that operates out of the campus Y um, just kind of reducing that risk on them as well. Some North Carolina legislators are attempting to keep cash payments in the economy after a growing number of businesses have switched to card only transactions following the pandemic. A new bill filed by a group of Republicans in the House would require all North Carolina businesses to accept cash payments. Businesses that refuse to accept cash could receive a $2,500 fine for the first violation and $5,000 fines for any subsequent violations. Republican House Majority Leader John Bell said the bill came from a concern of accessibility for those who do not have credit cards. A lot of folks in rural areas that carry cash. And so it's a, another barrier to prevent them from accessing products in the free market. Bell said that the consumer benefits of having a tangible payment method should take priority in this debate. From the retailer side, I understand the convenience of not having to deal with cash and the security issues that can possibly run into with cash. But, but from the consumer side, cash is king. And 
it's almost like some of these folks are phasing it out and just going into electronic transactions. Laws requiring businesses to accept cash already exist in Colorado, Washington, D.C., and Massachusetts, as well as in some larger cities such as San Francisco and Philadelphia. A similar bill proposed in Idaho failed after Republicans argued businesses should be free to choose how they serve their customers. Bell said the bill likely isn't going anywhere in North Carolina because it was referred directly to the House Rules Committee on February 28th. The Rules Committee is usually where bills go to die. Not saying that bill won't ever be considered, but no mess sign that bill has some issues and more likely will not be heard. Back in meantime, King said passing the Cash Commitment Act would require their business to change a lot structurally. The first would be figuring out logistically, um, space-wise, like on the counter, where do we put a cash box? Like, where do we keep a cash jar? Like, where do we put that cash overnight kind of thing? Um, I think safety-wise, how are we going to inform everyone that operates out of here? You know, um, best practices, how do we inform our employees? Um, who do we work with to kind of take that cash in and out of the building? I think it just complicates matters just a little bit more. Um, but our main priority is really like safety of everyone in the building. For now, customers looking to enjoy Meantime Coffee can expect to pay either with a credit card, debit card, or electronic payments such as Apple Pay. In Chapel Hill, I'm Kyle Turek. Since October, a shortage of the drug Adderall, along with other stimulants, has been changing the way pharmacies and psychiatric practices operate. It's also created problems for people with ADHD who can't get their prescriptions filled. Savannah Gunter has more. Adderall is a type of amphetamine used to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. The drug regulates dopamine and norepinephrine levels in the brain. This month marks the fifth international Adderall shortage according to the Food and Drug Administration, and it's starting to impact the supply of other ADHD medications. Before UNC junior Lila Davidson was diagnosed this January, she says she struggled to focus on assignments. Definitely have to read what I wrote, like at least four times to really even understand what it is that I've written and I'm an English major so writing a lot of essays all the time. Davidson says medication allows her to focus more easily especially when writing papers. It almost feels like my brain powers up if that makes sense and a cloud goes away. After her diagnosis Davidson was prescribed a stimulant called Vyvanse which didn't work for her but when her prescription changed to Ritalin it came with a caveat. They were saying that they hoped that there would be Ritalin for me to get. They said that it's not as bad as Adderall, but I may have some problems getting it. Um, and when I showed up to CVS, they hadn't filled the prescription yet. And the pharmacist was like, just so you know, we might not have it. But for those refilling Adderall prescriptions, this is likely to happen often. UNC Campus Health's Director of Pharmacy, Amy Sauls, says students with Adderall prescriptions are experiencing longer wait times. They're all in very short supply, uh, no matter the pharmacy, it seems. Uh, so we order supply every day, and it's sporadic what comes in the next day and what doesn't. But we order every day so that we at least give it a shot. In October, the FDA cited manufacturing problems as the source of the shortage. But now experts say the problem continues because of a recent demand increase. Sauls says this makes it hard to know when Adderall and its alternatives will be distributed normally again. This particular shortage is a little harder to get at because what the FDA is telling us is that all the manufacturers are operating as they should and as they have been. It's just an increase on the demand side. 
The director of well-being and resiliency for UNC's pharmacy school, Suzanne Harris, says this will especially impact people who take Adderall daily and people who have taken it for a long time. Those people are going to be at higher risk for having, you know, like withdrawal symptoms from coming off of the medications. Harris says withdrawal symptoms can include irritability, appetite changes, headaches, jitteriness, and fatigue, as well as a resurgence of ADHD symptoms. Though Davidson doesn't take Ritalin daily, she says losing the option to take it at all would be concerning. I'd feel scared, I think. I'm taking this semester off from classes, and probably the largest contributing factor to that was that I wanted to get diagnosed with ADHD because I've gotten this far up to my halfway through my junior year at Carolina, and I think last semester I was starting to break a little bit just because of the lack of focus. Since it's unclear when manufacturers will be able to match the rising Adderall demand, pharmacists and psychiatrists are encouraging people who are prescribed stimulants to be proactive with their care. If you're on the wait list at Campus Health, Sauls recommends calling around to different pharmacies because she says access is sporadic universally, or discussing alternative medications. Harris says making a plan with a psychiatrist can help navigate the shortage also. Could they um, spread their doses out more or could they think about using a lower dose and extend the supply that they have until they come up with an alternative plan? Davidson says even in the shortage, seeking professional help for ADHD is still important, maybe even more so. I think sometimes we don't realize that we are struggling and we don't validate the fact that we are. And so it's like so cheesy and kind of annoying, but... There are options out there besides just pushing through. As the Adderall shortage continues, experts recommend keeping in contact with mental health professionals and taking care of your body. In Chapel Hill, I'm Savannah Gunter. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Lorelai Sykes. And I'm Will Christensen. A lab in UNC's Applied Physical Sciences Department has a new tool to help people with cardiac diseases. It's a blooming robot, a small implant that folds and unfolds like the petals of a flower. Sofia Basruto has the story. The biolab can be found on the seventh floor of the Keenan Labs, overlooking a corner of UNC's campus. So you could see uh, it's definitely not very organized. (laughs) This is assistant professor Wuvenbai, who leads the bioelectronics lab. It's split into three parts. The first focuses on chemistry. The second is where researchers test their projects with high-tech computers. And the far back section is where polymer processing. These sections came together in a recent project on medical implants, named Bloomable Robots. So when we think of implants, we always have an impression it may hurt. But uh, a flower blooming is very natural. And uh, that's kind of our vision for for designing robots. These implants are designed to minimize damage to biological tissue. So, as they are inserted into the body, they are very small. However, once the implant reaches its destination, it expands, blooming as it settles into place. As of now, the bloomable robots are targeting cardiac diseases and bladder malfunction. But Bai says doctors can eventually use them for most internal organ diseases. Bai got this idea of a blooming robot implant from nature, seeing local flowers and thinking about trying to replicate that blooming movement. But he can't really remember having a striking moment of epiphany. Maybe there's such a moment, but uh, the the overall development of the device is a very uh, gradual uh, process, uh, requires uh, try and errors. 
The goal is to eliminate the need for extracting the implant after treatment by using biocompatible materials. This would allow these implants to target longer treatment diseases. I can actually show you. You can find other active projects in the BiLab, like ones pertaining to muscles. In the second section of the lab, graduate student Arjun Pucha tracks his muscle activity by shining light through his arm. It's high intensity that you'll see the output below, and if you have a more tendons or more muscles, it occludes more light or it absorbs more light. So you can see the shadows of tendons. This project is to learn if there are any patterns or activity from muscles in order to improve biosensors. They have another project too on pulse oximetry, a test used to measure the oxygen levels of blood. And so in people of color, these pulse oximeters tend to be more inaccurate. They actually overestimate saturation. So you can imagine that, you know, if you have an overestimation of saturation, your metric of health is skewed. So, you know, a brown or black patient might appear healthier than they should. The inaccuracy of pulse oximetry in people of color is due to how it is measured now, with red and infrared light. But melanin absorbs these wavelengths, affecting the accuracy of the measurements. So, Pucha's goal is to make the test more accurate for people of color by modifying the hardware and software of these testers. Let's see. There we go. The BiLab has six members, and they're all steadily moving towards creating new tools to address and improve unmet clinical needs in healthcare. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sofia Basurto. UNC Chapel Hill has hundreds of non-traditional undergraduate students who are 25 or older. The experience as an older learner comes with a number of challenges. Denise Stroud has more. On a recent Friday morning, Kim Swain leaves her 8 a.m. Truth and Proof class. It's an introduction to mathematical logic at the Caldwell Building, across from the Old Well on Cameron Ave. She's on her way to the Genetic Medicine Research Building, behind the bell tower. She's keeping up a brisk pace for a 69-year-old. Swain's a part-time communications major, has junior standing, and is chipping away at her undergraduate degree by taking two to three courses a year. Well, I work full-time, and I currently am taking two courses and a language lab, and I found that that is just overwhelming, so I'm not going to ever do that again. <laughs> As an older student, Swain deals with some challenges that younger students may not. I'm finding memorization very challenging, so that is something. And I also had to go learn kind of how to study again uh, because things have changed greatly. Uh, there weren't even computers when I was in school, um, so there's a lot to learn. The Friday Center recently consolidated advising for part-time degree-seeking students in an effort to better meet their needs. This comes after several redirections in how advising works for part-time degree-seeking students. Advising moved from the Friday Center to the individual colleges, then back again. So I was given um, probably my fifth advisor since I started. She's doing a great job, and I'm hoping that the consolidation will mean that there's somebody who understands the challenges of non-traditional students to help with guidance. Desiree Stukes is a double major in African, African American, and Diaspora Studies and Information Science. She's a senior graduating in May and she's 61. I've enjoyed all of my classes. Um, I've enjoyed the teachers and just for me, it's just great getting the knowledge because I had originally gone to college um, when I graduated from high school and did not finish up. 
Stukes found she had a knack for technology. I worked for a government consulting firm and did a lot of programming. I actually got hired at Cisco and I worked there for eight years. Like many other older professionals without a formal degree, she found the employment terrain got harder to navigate. My resume wouldn't even get looked at because I didn't have a bachelor's. Stukes also found that accessibility issues were a recurring concern when on campus. The chairs sometimes that they have in the rooms, they have the chairs where the, the table is attached. Like that is, is an anxiety to me. Like I'm getting old, I'm getting arthritis. Director of Digital and Lifelong Learning, Jennifer Larson says UNC is trying to focus on providing more support for part-time degree-seeking students, which are often older. There is a whole lot of life that happens outside of campus, outside of the classroom. Work around work hours, work around elder care hours, work around child care hours. Um, but it's like, let's see if we can create a system that respects you as a whole learner. Both Swain's and Stukes' determination and drive to finish their degrees is obvious. With time, the university hopes to make the experience of more students like them a little bit easier. In Chapel Hill, I'm Denise Stroud. On Thursday night, UNC was kicked out of the ACC tournament with a 59-68 loss to Virginia. After a disappointing season, many are doubtful that UNC will be given a place in the NCAA tournament. Here to talk about the chances of both the men's and women's basketball teams is the Daily Tar Heels assistant sports editor, Shelby Swanson. Shelby, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. When we talked about it last week, you know, this was a do-or-die game for UNC basketball, right? They had to beat Virginia, at least in terms of the NCAA tournament. So at the end of the day, what are our odds here? UNC is more likely than not not, not going to make the NCAA tournament. They simply just haven't built the resume that is needed to earn a bid. And I think their only really hope at this point was to make some waves in the ACC tournament. Obviously, you know, if you win the conference tournament, you get an automatic bid, um, but they didn't either. They won one game against a Boston College team that's really just bottom of the ACC. And there's just really nothing in terms of what they've done the regular season that they can rely on. They have one quad one win that I believe also comes against that same Virginia team that they lost to in the ACC tournament. They don't really have a very strong overall record, a strong ACC record, and I just think that the chances are really, really dismal. And if UNC does make the NCAA tournament, it's a very questionable choice by the committee. And on the flip side of that, I mean, last week, uh, the UNC women's basketball team also lost in the quarterfinals of the ACC championship uh, in a low-scoring game to Duke, 40-44, uh, to 44, I believe. What are their chances of making at least the women's NCAA tournament? The women's team is in a much better place than the men's team. They are definitely a lock for the NCAA tournament. And really the question is whether or not they will host a regional in Chapel Hill. This would be big news for the program. They haven't hosted a regional, I believe, since the 2015 season. And this is something that Banghart has really been making the case for. You know, this is a team that last year they thought that they should have hosted a regional. Instead, they fell to being a five seed. Um, you need to be a one through four seed to host a regional in the field of 64. And with that five seed, you know, they kind of had a chip on their shoulder, went to Tucson and knocked off um, the regional host, uh, the Arizona Wildcats. And now this year, they've played a much more competitive schedule, having, I believe, 42% of their opponents in the net um, top 25, 
really competitive schedule. They're six and seven against top 25 teams. And really, you know, aside from the road loss to Indiana, the overtime loss at NC State, the rest of those losses against top 25 teams were by single digits. I know the team is confident about it. And we'll have to wait and see. I believe Sunday night is when they will announce the bracket for the NCAA Women's Tournament. Got it. Shelby Swanson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was the Daily Tar Heel Assistant Sports Editor, Shelby Swanson. The end of the world has come for UNC men's basketball. But what about the rest of us? With the finale of HBO's The Last of Us coming out tomorrow, Carolina Connections Charisma Daniel and Christian Phillips asked UNC students what they would do in the case of a zombie apocalypse. My name is Daniel Wee I am a freshman, and to survive the zombie apocalypse, I'd find myself a gun, as much ammunition as I could, and I'd find a little bunker, a bunch of canned food, and I will not be helping anybody else out. Uh, I'm Becca Turner. I am a sophomore, and I think if I were in the zombie apocalypse, I would just basically barricade myself in the nearest like isolated insulated building maybe like Moorhead Labs I feel like it's really like concrete I would probably go there. Dean Harris a sophomore and I would get a lot of food and probably surround myself in some kind of barbed wire like enclosure. My name is Max Mosciello I'm a junior and to survive a zombie apocalypse to be honest I'd just give up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Charisma Daniel. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lorelai Sykes. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.